Hello, everyone. I'm Miriam Knight. Welcome to New Consciousness Review. Our guest today is Julia Asante, an established social historian of the ancient Near East with a PhD from Columbia University. She has taught at Columbia, Bryn Mawr, and the University of Münster, and lectured worldwide. But for over 35 years, she has also been an active, professional, intuitive, medium, and past life therapist. And her accuracy in telepathy has been clinically tested at Columbia University. She's just come out with a new book called The Last Frontier, Exploring the Afterlife and Transforming Our Fear of Death. In it, she applies the combined insights and methodologies she gained from both fields in a uniquely rigorous investigation of where we go after we die. So buckle your seatbelts and enjoy the ride. Welcome, Julia Asante. Oh, Miriam, thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, I am so delighted to have had this opportunity not only to meet you in person, but to get to read this fascinating book, all 367 pages of it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes, it was originally uh, much longer. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. Sometimes it's much easier to do long than short. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, Julia, tell me what inspired the shift from being an academic to studying the afterlife and talking with dead people? A number number of things. The um, intuitive side of me has always been very strong, and suppressing it in order to stay in an academic world was becoming an unbearable pressure. So that that was one thing. I had to make a decision about that. But... um, Mainly it it derives from uh, one single event. As an intuitive, uh, I've been working since the mid-70s with uh, deceased. One, as in a normal session, a private session, gets some sort of message frequently from the folks on the other side. There have been a series of events afterwards where I started working with people on the other side who had difficulties in transiting. But this one event uh, happened while I was in graduate school of a man who I love very dearly. And when I saw, when we finally made contact and I saw the relief on his face, the profound gratitude, the euphoria that someone could still see him, perceive him in any way, hear him in any way, that he was still counted as a human being, that he still existed to someone, that was when I made the vow to write this book one day. And that session with him, which, which was spontaneous, he, he came to me shortly after his death, um, that lasted for over an hour, and it was uh, questions and answers. It was disagreements. It was joking. Uh, it, it combined almost all ranges of human emotion, even a little bit of anger. And uh, when I realized that everyone can have this and what this can do for us in terms of our understanding of the afterlife or in terms of, of how we die, um, uh, in terms of grief, um, there was no no question that I was going to write this. How powerful. Yeah, it was. It was. And it's continued to this day. And that, that event opened up an enormous portal, which I had after death communication uh, in, of people in my private life that were absolutely outstanding. And yet, one could say that the fear of death is really what keeps the world in check, what runs the world. Where where does that stem from? 
it stems from seventh um, century BC Judaism. Um, that's a bit of a history there, but uh, where when the afterlife and contact with uh, uh, the dead, which which archaeologists like myself call ancestors, a bit of a misnomer, was basically it was outlawed. Um, and the afterlife more or less disappeared in Judaism. Um, the God of the living, as, as Yahweh was called, uh, was not concerned with them. So there was already then a sense of um, the afterlife being territory one does not explore. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, death itself was conceived or construed as a punishment in the creation story. So I think we've inherited a lot on that end. Religions certainly have uh, manipulated the afterlife in order to uphold their own hierarchies and structures with a reward-punishment system, whether it's in reincarnation, um, a bad one coming if you've been immoral in this life, or heaven, hell, and purgatory setups. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a lot of it inherited <clears throat> Excuse me, from the religious end, but then... Uh, uh, when you start to add in the mix of this profoundly materialist orientation of science in the 20th century, uh, you start getting a pull from the science end of the afterlife being uh, a fiction of an illusion. And so from both ends, you have a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, I was actually, um, in my question, kind of thinking about um, sin and judgment, obedience and disobedience, going right back to Adam and Eve and Abraham. I thought it was very amusing that um, you associate Eve with disobedience and Abraham with obedience. Women are to a woman. frequently associated with uh, disobedience. If you look at um, uh, the uh, cursing of apostasy in the Old Testament, apostasy meaning non-believers or idol worshippers or whatever, uh, unfaithful, they are often uh, conflated with or used as a metaphor for the unfaithful wife, the uh, adulteress. And that's caused a lot of confusion in the Bible. So Yahweh is the, is the male mate, and the faithful are his wives. And this is a metaphor that runs throughout the Old Testament. The whore Babylon is not about a whore. It's about Babylon being a place of, of um, unfaithfulness in which the Jews went and spent some time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the so all this faithfulness is really uh, a kind of a rod with which to chastise anybody who steps out of line. Yeah, never done before <laughs> in a religion. It, it's just amazing to me. And so... Uh, at that time when this, this, I call it a cult. I hate, hate to, uh, uh, say that sort of, uh, publicly, but it, it was a cult. It was a forming cult against, uh, uh, canon and canonic cults, canine cults at the time. Um, the use of sin, of abomination against a single god was unprecedented. And this is something you can actually track to about fifth century BC. So the notion of sin, is quite new, and it's probably the worst thing that ever happened to humanity. Well, being, of course, disobedience, really. Sure, but the notion of sin um, plays into the fear of death, because right. the fear of death is 
is instilled because you you believe that um, you will suffer in hell or you will suffer some mighty punishment uh, if you don't toe the line. And so you could say that your book and, and your, your life's work, in, indeed, to relieve the fear of death is pretty darn revolutionary. <laughs> well, you know, when you look at how our society is constructed around it, it's quite shocking. And not only is it constructed around it, but uh, our society and the industries within it and the institutions within it have learned to exploit that fear. And that fear is making a fortune. Um, the uh, societies like for uh, certain kinds of research for fatal diseases can get up to $2 billion a year in donations. Um, the uh, health and beauty industry is raking it in. The news and entertainment industry provide a steady feed of gruesome deaths uh, and uh, other sorts of turmoil that lead to death disasters and natural disasters or war or whatever. That's the way we teach history, too. So medical industries, insurance, pharmaceuticals, uh, certainly the war industry, uh, certain branches of the government, and even, I must say, um, judicial systems. We, we really do operate constantly under this gun, and uh, it's growing. It's not lessening. It's growing. This um, fighting the, uh, the slide toward death, fighting death itself, understanding death as a pathology, which is the last thing that it is. It's an act of incredible creation. Uh, this is This is disrupting our natural cycles um, and, and creating a tremendous amount of tension and havoc. It's also creation, creating overpopulation and greed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell us how, what is your conception of what death really is and how did you come to it? Uh, let, me, let me address the, first, the second question first. I, I came to it because I look at the material. I look at my own experience and analyze it. I analyze the material as a production of consciousness that existed in time and place. In other words, what I look at is modern Western humans. And so that the afterlife experiences that I am looking at, I understand within that context. Um, that it is um, a, a, the afterlife Death itself, let's, let's get back a little bit. Death itself, the dying process itself, is being recognized more and more by medical personnel, in particular hospice nurses, who are beginning to see the miraculous aspects of it. This is something that has intrigued me for many, many years, and I've been around an awful lot of deaths. Um, how the, the psyche pulls together events and people uh, even their, their personal biology in order to achieve reconciliation, for instance. Um, it's a tremendously creative process. It involves uh, highly accelerated growth uh, rather than decay and uh, growth that is meant to catapult the psyche out of the body, more or less. We also now know of a thing, new thing called nearing death awareness, which is where people... Um, in the dying process, begin to develop um, uh, incredible skills or psychic skills or intuitive skills in which they have deathbed visions, such as uh, seeing uh, those from the other side coming to escort them or coming to give them messages. More and more uh, medical personnel and caregivers are seeing these 
uh, deceased individuals themselves. Um, death, deathbed visions also, of course, include visions of the afterlife just before entry. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's so many things that go on in the dying process. And I think that people who are um, at all there, who are not too much interfered with by uh, the needs of the hospital and hospitals um, and, and, and doctors and whatever, actually do feel this opening threshold, this spacious moment that seems to get bigger and bigger and include all of us. I know of no one who hasn't um, wondered at the last words of the dying or the last gestures of the dying. We know and feel the depth of it. And it's time for us to celebrate that. And it's time for us to stop looking at death as a failure and see it for what it is, which is a miraculous creative act. You need to expand upon that, because when you're talking about a creative act, you're talking about the next act. So what is the next act? The, ne the next act is the changing of focus from physical to non-physical. We call it non-physical right now in the, in the context we're speaking today. We call it afterlife, but truthfully, it isn't that. It's not after anything. It's just the non-physical dimensions, and that includes an awful lot, Miriam. It includes also the pre-born so this misnomer, I think, we're just getting used to afterlife now, so I more or less am letting that slide. I'm not going to talk <laughs> about that. But at some point, when we get more sophisticated and more is known, um, and I hope more is known uh, by, by study, by examination, by investigation and personal experience, but by discriminating investigation, uh, when we get to that point, we might be secure enough in survival to start looking at our idea of an afterlife and expand it to include all non-dimension, non-physical dimensions. Well, in parallel with your uh, description of the various stages of life or, or, or a being, I should say, um, you also have an interesting description of time. You, have, you talk about sequential and simultaneous and interactive time. Tell us how they interrelate. We, you know, um, if we even thought about time and the way we live it now, I mean, think about the second. The second was invented, I think, maybe 200 years ago or, or less. <laughs> you know, we're living in a completely artificial construction of time as it is. Our idea of time is really only how our nervous systems organize data, whether it's solar data or it's... Uh, data of what we perceive of uh, as events. It's an organizational tool, but time in itself doesn't really exist. Um, all, there all, are all kinds of time, uh, time experiences, let's say. With near-death experiences, for instance, they often report simultaneous time in which you get all events happening at once. Uh, simultaneous time can also be experienced when one is in a trans transcendent state. Um, all things exist at once in, a, in this spacious moment. That is about as true as it's going to get. But time, at the same, it also can be uh, manipulated and used. The people in the afterlife, for instance, use time in very different ways, or they experience non-time when they feel like it, or they do it all at the same time. Hmm. <clears throat> but um, Well, that has kind of implications for the notion of karma and cause and effect, doesn't it? It, it wipes it out. And the idea of, uh, yeah, <laughs> to put it bluntly, the idea of something 
uh, a cause and effect is obviously something that is uh, time bound. It has to be there has to be a before and after, and of course not. That doesn't happen. Um, our incarnations um, are simultaneous. In other words, you can reach your future ones now, uh, and you can reach your past ones now. Um, in the afterlife, they are also uh, still in existence. You do not vacate one personality and adopt another. They're all in existence. This is a big, big universe. Consciousness knows no limits. And so they all these creations, all part of the personality, uh, even most of our thought forms, they never die. They all exist, and they exist in a non-space, non-time zone we call right now the afterlife or a non-local reality. And we, we're going to have to accept that. Um, there, are, there are a lot of hints of this in physics, of course, uh, non-causality in physics. Um, and I think the more we pursue this sort of thing, as uncomfortable as it can be for people who like to think that, you, pay, you know, the bad guy pays in the end, mm -hmm. um, it will further us tremendously if we liberate ourselves, especially from clock time. Clock time is really sad. You, you had an interesting um, uh, case study or, or case report of a young man or a man whose father was, had abused him and his sisters. And uh, he bore tremendous understandable anger towards him. And yet you brought them into a, a space of reconciliation. How... How did that happen, and what did that do for all the parties involved? I think you're talking about this guy who was suicidal and his two sisters had committed suicide? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't do that. This is. I'm glad you brought it up, though, because there is a new therapy out called... There's actually more than one, but this is the, the biggest of them and extremely successful, called Induced After-Death Communication Therapy. And this was affected by one of these one of these therapists, where the father and his buddies were raping all three of their children, one of whom was a male. All three of his children, one of whom was a male. Uh, as they grew up, the father died, the two daughters committed suicide, and the remaining son wanted to commit suicide because, really, he had post-traumatic stress disorder, he had intrusive memories, he was in a state of constant terror. And with a few sessions in this induced after-death communication therapy, this was all resolved. The sisters uh, came and begged him to make contact with the father uh, and to start the forgiveness process. They also, the sisters also begged him not to consider suicide, which is something you always hear. And this guy did it. He got through all the fear. He got through the tremendous rage. And he eventually, um, out by perceiving uh, in communication, by perceiving the, uh, the deep remorse of the father he was able to forgive. And forgiveness is the whole of the law. What is amazing about these new therapies is that um, they are producing effects where they are knocking out the grief process absolutely with tremendous speed and they can cause tremendous healing. There's so many cases of post-traumatic stress disorder that have been cleared up within seconds by the pertinent dead showing up, saying the right words. The person has a physical experience. It's not just words. You have a, there's an electrical component that goes on here that actually re, sort of reconstitutes your psyche, uh, something I'm looking at in the future. But um, to think that we have this now, 
my dearest hope is that this spreads. Uh, my dearest hope is that the direct communication with the afterlife uh, becomes common, becomes normal. Because when that happens, the way we live and the way we die will change in uh, uh, 180 degrees. A lot of people who have had near-death experiences report um, heightened abilities of, of consciousness, healing abilities, uh, illnesses that they've had may spontaneously clear up. Is this a similar kind? Oh, and you also did such an experiment with a group of students you had where you took them to their own death experience and they had many of the benefits of people who have had NDEs. Tell us about this whole complex. I um, Incidentally, I do that workshop. I do it as a workshop quite frequently where I take people through their deaths. And it's amazing how um, easy it is for people, how much they do know about their futures. And I want to, to remind all listeners here that you know, what you see and experience uh, at the end of your life and this life can be changed. So if there's something you don't like, you can change it. But most of them, uh, no, not most, all, all that I can remember now, they go into a space afterwards of such tremendous sense of security and freedom. Uh, so it seems to be across the board. And uh, I think practicing dying is, is, is quite a good thing. Children do it. <laughs> so there's no reason for us not to do it, to get us a little accustomed to it, you know, take a, a run through and to see what it tells us about how we've lived our lives and uh, to project yourself into the future and to look back and see where fear of death uh, got in the way, mm -hmm. fear of vulnerability of any kind got in the way and uh, blocked self-fulfillment, blocked creativity, blocked the stream of love that is really natural to all of us. So anytime you have a contact with your inner self that way, it promotes uh, more psychic ability. But I think there's also uh, strong electro, electro, electrical components that occur in near-death experiences and most psi experiences that actually are altering somehow the general matrix, electrical, electrobiological matrix uh, of our forms and our thinking. Um, with most of the uh, par paranormal phenomena, you have a certain electrical phenomena that go along with it, and that's certainly true in your death experiences who um, afterwards seem to destroy electronics. Um, this is also true for a lot of mediums. And this is something that I'm actually going to be speaking about soon in Palo Alto, but... Um, there are considerable alterations with after-death communication, with uh, experiences of future projection of, of the dying process, with near-death experiences. Anytime you touch immortality, you're going to have a big change. And that can even change your intelligence quotient. It can sharpen your life purpose. It can uh, knock out your need for competition and fears. It's just, it unveils your authentic self. And that's mm -hmm. the, the whole of it. What you are after you die is your authentic self, and that's something of great power and beauty. You speak of death as being a choice. What do you mean by that? We're not a victim to it. 
we we do choose even in accidents we do choose when when we die if you look at the statistics of um of uh train crashes for instance and it's um there's a reduction of um an enormous reduction of how many passengers are on the trains that crash and same same is true for plane crashes um it's a, a rather consistent and easily plottable uh study and many of them have been done so there's people know and they either participate or they don't mm. uh when it comes to illnesses our illnesses are generally fashioned by consciousness you know it's it's part of what we do some illnesses are all illnesses are creative for better or for worse and we more or less pick the ones that we that we um want to use either for mm-hmm. metaphoric reasons or or for reasons that have to do with family situations in which case we call the illness genetic but it's all really about choice so I, i have spoken to a lot of doctors who um have written books suggesting that um these severe illnesses are really our body's way of getting our attention that something needs to change in our lives that's Which true I, but uh, on the other hand if you if you if you take somebody with a multiple personality they can be ill in one personality and not in another yes. Yes. So so or placebo effects or false operations that seem to be doing <laughs> doing yeah. people and so much of it is the component of the psyche and because the psyche is really just the body is really just a light show that follows follows the psyche's imprints right they mean really it is there's not nothing mm-hmm. there there's nothing physical there right Miriam you know that if i reduce all the atoms and the space in the atoms of your body all the space in the motion Um, you black you, hole just a microscopic dot the little tiny itsy bitsy miriam <laughs> so really it's all about intention it's all about what we think we consciousness are. yeah projecting yeah. projecting diseases and what not okay so tell us why contact with the dead is beneficial across the board i mean think of something that can what whatever else can uh, absolutely cure post traumatic stress disorder for instance it uh, can warn people of impending uh, accidents or even uh, deaths um it uh, certainly reconciliation is one of the most important aspects of it reconciliation forgiveness on both sides whichever side needs it most um it's great for the dead because of many of them are having difficulty when they pass over generally because no one talked to them about the fact that where they were dying or they didn't understand what was going to happen to their children and things of that sort or because they had um a quick death uh, unexpected or it was an accident or it was murder and they need to tell us about it share it with us very often it's remorse Mm-hmm. Uh, they feel they, they the need to make contact with those they've hurt can be really compelling yeah. and in order to help them do that it's good to make contact but more than anything it's just having new parents for instance immortal wonderful parents Re- relationships continue they they stay alive they improve enormously because the dead are uh, accept their accountability for what has passed um but they are really truly themselves and i think it's extremely important for them that we see them the way they really are without the fear of death in the way mhm what's the difference between a ghost and a dead person a lot you know all ghost sightings are attached often to a specific locale with repetitive movement things of that sort the dead 
show up where you are because they're, they're coming to see you. The ghosts don't care about seeing you. They don't even want to be seen by you, generally. They don't interact at all. They're in a world of their own. The ghosts are not core personalities. It's not the whole self. The things that are thrown off by the core personality, powerful, usually obsessive, compulsive thought behaviors that are so strong that they leave imprints and have a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The core yeah. personality is, is, is separates from that, often at death, but sometimes earlier. You can see ghosts, for instance, in uh, uh, homes where Alzheimer's patients are, or you can see ghosts even for people who were alive when they had powerful emotions. Um, that, that kind of imprint can continue and survive and be visible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, seeing some photographs taken of Tower Hill in London, and there was the clear outline of a hangman's gibbet uh, superimposed on the, on the empty, grassy knoll. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And those, those imprints are everywhere, uh, and it'd be really wonderful if we could clean them out. It's like a, a little bit like air pollution. We can live with it, but it's better if we don't have it. Yeah. And it does affect us emotionally. There's no question about it. I've been in certain regions where I start getting caught up in things. Everything is going wrong, and I, I feel fearful. And as soon as I can identify what that is, it goes away. But... Um, yeah, I would, would not want to see Auschwitz settled, you know, condos on top of it. Right. Until right. it's cleaned out. So you, you talk about these negative thought forms. Is communication with the dead dangerous in any way? Mm, uh, the tens and tens or well, thousands of reports collected, there hasn't been one instance of danger. The only danger that can happen is the fear that you bring to it, which could perhaps cause a heart attack or something, but I doubt it. Um, it's your own fear if it's there. It'll get, if your fear is strong enough and repressed enough, it'll project something that you might think is real from the other side, but it's generally not. Uh, 99.9% of the time, the dead are there for you, not for themselves. They're there to help you out. They're there to deliver a message that will soothe you or bring you from grief to euphoria, uh, they are well-intentioned. So we have no records of it being dangerous. We have these ideas of Ouija boards and all this, you know, it's, uh, this witchy stuff and oh, opening up the dark side. This is all of our junk around death. Think of any words that we have around death funeral or casket or corpse. Uh, there are no words that um, uh, are associated with death or dying that are pleasant. Mm. So we bring that fear to it. But when you have an afterlife encounter, then you see the joy, the, 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 uh, the beauty of it is just, it's extreme. Hmm. You, you had a great line. You said, uh, death is not what separates us from the departed. Fear is. So can anyone learn to communicate with the dead? I think everyone already does. It's more of a matter to uh, becoming more aware of it. Certainly. I haven't worked with anyone so far that hasn't been able to do it. And when, when you really learn how to make contact, wait to get that attention, where, that, where your attention and the attention of the deceased click in the same way that it clicks in, in physical life, when you know someone is really listening, then um, anything is possible. When that happens, you've got two-way communication um, so a great deal of what I do is to train people to do that themselves. 
so they don't have need the uh, need a medium and to make it more normal is something you can do in your bedroom or your living room and not some something you have to go somewhere mm-hmm. to do um we always we're always in some kind of communication because we can't stop the telepathy most of it will show up in terms of mental intrusions uh, change of thought like well where did that thought come from or something of that sort or uh, songs where in which the lyrics mean something or the song itself means something and in my book i talk a great deal about how to open up those kinds of subtle signs into two-way communication we statistically there's already 72% of the american population has had an afterlife encounter of the spontaneous kind this is not including children not including dreams not including mental intrusions not including mediumship not including the therapies that are using after death communication as uh, for healing so not including prayer hmm. so i think uh, when you're really looking at it we're already doing it every each and every one of us is telepathic without telepathy we would not it would not be possible to have a civilization or for a mother to communicate with her infant so uh or prayer would be meaningless too for that matter so it's it's happening all the time it's is there a difference between telepathy and mediumship uh no not really um that's something that requires a great deal of study Uh, most of mediumship is a telepathic process the question for me more is what is telepathy if telep- telepathy is thought transfer then what's not thought hmm. so my my idea of telepathy is much more expanded than the accepted notion of uh thought uh, thought transfer from one mind to another i see it as a much broader category in which thought can interact in other words a projection of a dead person meets the projection of you <laughs> and interacts so we basically are already not much more than thought forms as it is that's what i'm trying to say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you you mentioned something that quite a few other um intuitives have suggested which is that an abusive childhood tends to predispose the individual to um intuitive awareness psychic opening do you think that the stresses of modern life of the media and so on are behind what i see as almost an explosion of psychic opening Yes, that's a good point. Absolutely. By the way, near death experiences are also the ones who have them as opposed to the ones who don't generally also have had stressful childhoods. So, there's a strong component uh between uh a uh, factor between uh, that stress and psychic ability factor that that uh one sees operating in our culture today, but I also suspect um that uh our uh close uh and daily interaction with electrical impulses is doing it too in other words when i talk to you now or i talk to you on a cell phone i'm i'm i am basically listening to electrical impulses that are changing into transformed into sound and back into electric, electrical impulses then back into sound and back into electrical impulses so that i think we have so much of that now as opposed to 100 years ago that um we're able more and more to perceive the finer subtler electrical impulses around us i think technology is a factor technology is a training ground the telephone itself was one um there's also the need for it 
Uh, we've gone so far in terms of uh, materialist culture that the spiritual side of us has not a word I like, by the way, but that that spiritual side of us is is uh, so repressed that it's, it has to explode. And it is doing so. So there are a lot of factors converging here, but uh, you're right. I'm noticing this too. It's, uh, it, is a, it is an explosion, and we are in the beginning stages of a considerable revolution of consciousness. Hmm. Um, tell us about reincarnation. Do you believe in it? Oh, yeah. I've located my last life's grave place in a rural town in England by a series of events and dreams. I knew the name. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. There's too much evidence out there to refute it at this point. The works of Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia, the late Ian Stevenson, now, now being carried forward by Jim Tucker. Um, quite, it's unmistakable. You have children with memory that gets into the upper 90% accuracy rate. Uh, these children have memories of the life just lived, and because those lives just lived uh, were, were only perhaps 10 years before or 5 years before the second life, the new life, um, the accuracy of their memories can easily be checked. In other words, often their parents from the life before are still alive. Mm-hmm. So it, um, also there's a, Stevenson wrote a great deal about um, wounds, uh, a person reporting a memory of being shot or knifed or whatever. Those wounds, if they come back very quickly, uh, will show up on the body as birthmarks. A bullet, mm-hmm. Uh, will show not just the entry wound, entry wound, but the exit wound as well often. So the accuracy of this stuff is just too high. Um, it, it's just too high. The works also not just of Ian Stevenson, but also of past life therapists who have repeatedly uh, information from a patient or a client that is uh, um, quite involved and so traceable. You can find the birth certificates um, death certificates, etc., and so forth. So yes, absolutely, it's there. But the question is uh, how we look at it. We look at it as a sequential thing, in which case uh, the personality sort of gets erased for the next uh, the next life. And this is just not what's going on. All these lives are simultaneous. You know, there are more and more people uh, managing to get in touch with a future life. Now that is riveting, and mm-hmm. I've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know other people who've done it, and we can learn an awful lot from future incarnations. Well, the physicists do talk about space-time, the space-time continuum, and they talk about folding space. And I, I guess that's kind of a visual metaphor for how it all might work. The, the scientists, uh, sorry, the, the academics like Ian Stevenson at University of Virginia, like you at Columbia, you had your your telepathic abilities tested within a university setting. Do you think that science is becoming more open to accepting this possibility of interdimensional communication? Yes, I do. I, I, I think there, I think it dep- depends on where. Stanford certainly, um, Princeton certainly, University of Virginia. 
um, more and more coming out. You have these conversion experiences like uh, um, Evan Alexander's and many doctors, in fact, who have had near-death experiences and who are writing about them. Yes, near-death experiences themselves are, are finding more and more uh, legitimacy and being received uh, as, as legitimate by more and more people in the sciences. That certainly was a stronghold. Uh, something upon which we were able to build. And uh, yet we, we still need to go further than this. The, these are still very poor with testing and mediumship, I think. Um, and we still have to develop the clinical trials for that. But uh, a little perfect them. Let's, let's put it that way. And, um, but yes, uh, yes, definitely there's more opening. There's, there's, um, there's an old notion of what's it called paraphysics. Is something that was uh, starting to rise in the 70s. Uh, I think that's something we're going to have to bring back. There are people who do paraphysics, but it's it's sort of lost its popularity as an idea or an area of study. But I, I think it. I think we can avoid it. It'll mm. definitely happen. What do you envision would be the changes in our world if interdimensional communication were deemed to be commonplace? That's such a huge question, Miriam. I just wish you and I could just dream about that and just brainstorm about that. Is everything would change, absolutely everything. Imagine if you really understood the nature of your immortality, how it would change the way you live. It's just, it just astonishes me when I think about it. And then also uh, the resources from the other side, mm-hmm. understanding that once we make contact with the deceased, we're making contact with all non-physical uh, what we could learn about consciousness itself or about the arts, about science, about history, about changing our technologies so that we can live without destroying the earth. It just, in the population drop alone, understanding uh, that we have been um, male, female, poor, uh, poor class, middle class, etc., and so forth, different races, uh, deformed, uh, murderers, possibly, or victims, whatever it is that we've been there, just understanding mm. that each how, of us has. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. How how most I don't know for each, but yeah, how it would level prejudice. Mm-hmm. How how the notion of immortality would level war. Now there would be a whole new morality and a whole different set of uh, of values. Now, in your book, you actually give step by step rules and 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 methods for doing this communication yourself um tell us tell us the the kind of core principles okay first let me let me say that a lot of people feel that they're that they can't do it and a lot of people feel that they shouldn't do it because they're either disturbing their dead or or they're tampering with something that's too dark all right so the real thing is, is to operate from your need and to bypass all of these silly ideas. Just bypass them and operate from your need. That's the first thing. Uh, understanding that we are in a benign universe. Understanding that the dead are willing to cooperate. They almost always show up when the need is there. And to... Um, when you say need, you're talking about real uh, grief and... and Anger it can be. It can be... Uh, uh, love or joy, it can be anything you can think of. Rage, uh, as long as you're operating from what you're feeling most and most strongly, you're honest emotionally. 
and that will open open the way. Otherwise, it'll it'll start to block more. Mm-hmm. And then then it's really a matter of stillness and intention and concentration. Um, most people hope to have an afterlife encounter in which they see the deceased as though they're 3D solid figures. But truthfully, it works better if you do it through mental images. It's much faster and it lasts longer. So what I go for always is what I call the process of internalization. Take it out of outside of you and put it inside of your mind and start there. Um, It's actually rather simple. And a lot of people uh, don't need all these steps, so they just need to read it and they need permission. Um, Permission to do it. And, and you just get going, open your mouth, invoke mm-hmm. the person you want to meet and do it with your greatest uh, co- concentration, your greatest uh, source of need and, and, and maximum energy. I, I was surprised that you say that we should be talking to the dead out loud. You know, just keep on talking. It's kind of, of um, pretending until it actually becomes the reality well yes it is but it also is a marker it makes it more real mm-hmm. and it lets the the dead know what you're getting in mm-hmm. in much uh, it, it it helps structure information when you talk out loud um even i do it um mm-hmm. when you're more practiced you can go more just in, mentally but still to to bring it out to to make it make it uh, a part of your mental process part of your memory speaking it back like a dictaphone <laughs> really is really helpful and it helps you to know yourself uh what you're getting and what you're not getting and helps the dead to know what what they're getting and what they're not getting so you know the communication process well it's a it keeps momentum going that's the most important thing is it keeps momentum going yeah it's, it's a whole new world out there, Julia. It's just so fascinating. Uh, are you doing, uh, you said you were doing workshops. Are you doing them in conjunction with your book tour? Yes, yeah, I am. I'm doing them. I have done uh, uh, many in California. I'm doing one in Seattle. Uh, um, where I go, I do them. And sometimes they're private. I've done private workshops, which are not on my website schedule. Uh, people ask me, maybe six or seven people ask me to, to develop something for their special needs. I love doing that. So I'll be doing them in Philadelphia, in Minneapolis, in Durham, North Carolina, in New York. Uh, and then I go to Austria and do some more. And what is your website? Not imaginative, Miriam. www.juliaasante.com Which is spelled J-U-L-I-A. A-S-S-A-N-T-E dot com. Uh, that's for the auditory among us. And we will have it printed in the accompanying notes as well. So what would be your highest vision for this book, The Lost Frontier, Julia? What's happening already? Miriam, is that people are writing me and feeling a huge change in themselves and shifts in themselves, especially those who are in deep grief. Um, I can't expect more than that, nor would I want more than that. Yes, I'm going to be doing research in the future, and I 
very, I am very scientifically oriented and want to continue in that in that area. But it is meeting a need in people is so deep, and at the same time opening new avenues up for them. Uh, I had a message today of someone who said that as he was reading the book, he felt physical changes in his body. So I can't ask for more than that. Wow. Well, we have been speaking with Julia Asante, the author of The Lost Frontier, Exploring the Afterlife and Transforming Our Fear of Death. And if she has anything to say about it, uh, fear of death is on the way out. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today. <laughs> thank you, Miriam. Thanks so much to you, too. And you'll be able to download our interview with Julia Asante to your iPhone or Android simply by going to our website, ncreview.com. You'll find a link to our mobile app right on the home page. Next week, our guest will be Mary Patterson. She will be discussing her new book, The Monks and Me, How 40 Days in Thich Nhat Hanh's French Monastery Guided Me Home. If the interview is anything like the book, it should be great fun, so don't miss it. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Kathy DeWitt from Gainesville, Florida. This one is from her album Dream Song, which was a finalist in the video category of the Posey Awards last year. It's all about forgiveness, unity, and oneness, and it's called Everybody's Somebody's Child. Everybody's somebody's child Everybody's had someone Who gave them their first smile Everybody's been rocked to sleep Had to be taught how to use their feet Everybody's somebody's child
Everybody is Somebody's Child by award-winning jazz composer and songwriter Kathy DeWitt. Kathy is the music director at Unity of Gainesville and created a pioneering music and medicine program to transform the hospital environment and the patient experience. Her website is kathydewitt.com. That's C-A-T-H-Y-D-E-W-I-T-T dot com. So, until next week... I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening, and be good to yourself this week. Goodbye.